This is the Author Biz Podcast with Stephen Campbell, session number nine. Welcome to the Author Biz Podcast. I'm Stephen Campbell, and each week I'll bring you interviews, information, and insights focused on the business of being an author. You can find the episode show notes, links to everything mentioned in the show, and lots more information at theauthorbiz.com. Greetings and welcome to the Author Biz, the Monday podcast focused on delivering actionable information to help you run your business as an author. I'm so thankful that you're listening today, and we've got an amazing show. My guest is author Deborah Kuntz, the author of the Lucky O'Toole series, and she's got a new book, the fifth in her Lucky series, titled Lucky Catch, coming out on August 25th. My wife and I met Deb at a book signing at Murder by the Beach, one of those fabulous little independent bookstores scattered about the country. It was maybe a year and a half ago when we first met. It was while she was touring for Lucky Bastard, the fourth book in the Lucky series. Well, as you'll hear in this interview, a lot has changed for Deb since then. She wasn't really happy with the way her books were being priced or marketed by her publisher, who happened to be an imprint of Macmillan, one of the big five. Of course, we're all led to believe that landing that contract with a big five publisher is the path to huge success as an author. But there are plenty of times where that just isn't the case. Deb tried to convince her publisher to make some changes to the way her books were being sold. And when she didn't feel like they were going to take her advice, she took the unusual and very entrepreneurial step of fighting to get her rights back to her series and to Lucky Catch, which was already under contract with them. In this interview, we'll discuss Lucky Catch and then get into some of the problems she experienced with traditional publishing and what she's done to retake control over her business as an author. Things like rebranding her books so they could be sold the way she'd always wanted. Dealing with the mindset changes, including a major battle with her own ego that took place when she chose to leave traditional publishing. She tells us what she did to get the rights back to her books and offers some advice for other authors who may find themselves in the same position she was in last year. I think that is what I would tell every author out there is get a lawyer, look at your contract. Now, I didn't go this way because I had a different scenario, but and I also am a lawyer. But um, look at your contract, be absolutely clear on when your books go out of print, what your rights are, you know, what you can ask for. And then understand what your publisher is doing and make a case that if they're not publishing your books, if they're not keeping them in print, if they're not being proactive in, in pushing your career, then make a case that, um, that you should get your rights back because that's the way you make a living. I'd really like to thank everyone who's downloading and listening to the show And my special thanks go out to those of you who rate and review the show on iTunes. This week, I'd like to give a special shout-out to author Roderick Vincent, otherwise known as Rick, whose debut novel, The Cause, is being published in November. He found Episode 7, where we talked about generating publicity with Julia Drake, to be particularly helpful. He gave the podcast a five-star rating and generously titled his review, The Best Podcast on the Book Biz. Big thanks to Rick Vincent, and good luck with your new book. I'm glad you're finding the show helpful. There wasn't much in the news this week, so I'm just going to get right to the interview. Today's guest, Deborah Kuntz, describes herself as proof positive that sex sells and persistence pays off. 
She spent time as an accountant, a pilot, a lawyer, and as a business owner. She spent 15 years learning the craft of writing and achieved her dream of being traditionally published. But that's just the beginning of this story, which begins with Deb telling us about the fifth book in her Lucky O'Toole series, Lucky Catch. Well, uh, Lucky Catch is the fifth full-length novel in my romantic mystery series set in Las Vegas. And um, the same cast of characters continues through the whole series. And this book actually uh, started with a smoking gun. <laughs> I, um, people always ask me where I get ideas for this stuff. And I, and I just, I, you know, they, they look at me when I tell them, you know, they just come to me. I'm in the most unusual situation. Something happens and boom, there's the story. And I was sitting at dinner, actually, at a little Italian place on the west side of Las Vegas. And I was with two of my um, very good friends, one of whom is a chef. And we were sitting there at dinner, and we'd ordered this sort of smorgasbord of, of mozzarellas, different kinds of uh, burratas and, you know, different kinds of mozzarellas. And one of them was smoked. It, it had a smoky flavor. And, of course, me being me, you know, I eat the cheese and I go, well, you know, I'm from Texas. I know how you smoke stuff. It involves, you know, a huge piece of cast iron stuff in the backyard with a lot of hickory and mesquite. And it takes 18 hours and then you have a smoked brisket. But how does that work with cheese? And my, my chef friend turned and looked at me like I had just crawled out from under a rock. And he goes, well, with a smoking gun, of course. <laughs> And I just looked at him. I said, seriously? <laughs> and he goes, yeah. And I said, oh, I so have to use that in a novel. How prosaic to kill somebody with a smoking gun. So I did. And um, as usual, I see the first scene, you know, where I, where I kill somebody. And I see the whole murder scene. And I think it's all great and fun. And then I have to figure out who I killed, why I killed them, and, and who actually in the story is responsible for killing them. And so I got really intrigued with uh, the foodie world in Las Vegas. You know, it's become quite the mecca for... Um, really high-end, you know, celebrity chef type of places. Everywhere in the world that you could want to go eat, um, is there's, there's an outpost in Vegas of that restaurant. And so I thought, you know, Vegas, Vegas, if you're going to grow something, you know, Vegas is like the surface of the moon to grow anything or to raise a cow. It would probably take 100 acres to raise one cow in Las Vegas. So how do they get all this high-end sushi and, and truffles and, oh, my God, the mushrooms and, the, you know, all the amazing things that they put in, in, in these incredible dishes. And so I started looking into, into the food transport business. And, you know, it's, it's very important that if you buy a $30,000 tuna from somebody in Tokyo at the fish market in Tokyo, you want it in your restaurant as soon as a plane can get it there, and you want to know that that fish has been maintained at a certain temperature or has not exceeded um, a, a high-end temperature so that it is still the, the fresh, beautiful, wonderful fish that it was in Tokyo when it was pulled out of the water. And so they have all kinds of mechanisms for following uh, food and for collecting data. And 
and it involves radio frequency and chips, and it's the technology used in you know your IDs at or your your even your hotel room key where you hold it in front of a sensor and it opens the door. And um, so I I thought, well, you know, there's got to be a great mystery in in this very competitive wor- world of of high end cookery and competing for a very limited supply of the best products on the planet to use in your dishes. And, you know, when, where there's a lot of money involved, there's usually a lot of murder involved. And so um, I, had my, I had fun with it, and I created a, you know, a chef cook-off where, where some, some big celebrity chefs are coming to, to do a, a fundraiser cook-off at the Babylon. And, and of course, the, the egos and, the, and the, you know, the ballyhoo all around that. And... Uh, and so I just, you know, I just created this world. And since Lucky's um, current lover is, um, is a French chef, a very famous uh, French chef, I thought, well, he needs to be right in the thick of it. And so um, I put he and his twin sister, um, who's in the food supply business, in the thick of, of the mystery. And dead bodies keep turning up. And, and the first one, the, the one killed with a smoking gun, is found in the French chef's food truck um, on the back lot of the Babylon. And, you know, there's this big food truck movement out, certainly on the West Coast. I don't know whether it's hit Florida yet. but no. um, Well, it's just amazing. And, it, and the food is, is incredible. And now some of the um, big-name chefs are using the food trucks to go out in the community and try out new recipes to see which ones work and which ones don't, you know, for their, for their big restaurants. And so that was the scenario that, that I set up with the French chef and, and his food truck. And because being French and, and being a chef, he would be caught dead in a food truck. So um, luckily he wasn't. But, and then another body turns up in, in, um, in a restaurant of his that is going into a new property that Lucky is managing, um, ends up in the oven in, in that restaurant. And so... You know, I just, I, it was a little bit reminiscent of, there was a movie back in the 70s called Who's Killing the Great Chefs of Europe? Yeah. And um, it was absolutely just, I thought it was great fun. And so this is a little reminiscent of that, certainly not as madcap and slapstick. And um, and I think it was, was it Jacqueline Bissett who was in it? or yes. I, yes. I don't I don't think Lucky is quite up to her standards, but we're trying, you know, in terms of just the beauty factor. But... Um, so anyway, that's the story, and Lucky has several complications in her personal life. That's the murder part of it, and I had fun with the food, and I hope the foodie people sort of think it's an interesting look at the behind-the-scenes of, of the food world. But Lucky's personal life, as usual, is in a great deal of disarray, and um, her first love, her former lover, Teddy, um, is back, and he causes all kinds of trouble. <laughs> And, um, and it, they gave me, the two of them gave me a, a great chance to, to analyze the question, um, can you ever go back um, in a relationship? Has, if somebody has breached trust, you know, so horribly, can you, can you ever regain that solid footing? And if so, how do you do that and where do you start? And so I had sort of... Um, fun with them and, and analyzing that. And then Lucky's mother, of course, Mona, um, who is a former um, hooker and madam um, and, and is now uh, married to, actually married to Lucky's father. Um, <laughs> who owns the hotel that Lucky works in? Who owns the hotel, in? who owns the Babylon. 
and she's ensconced in the penthouse and, and causes Lucky a great deal of trouble. And um, she is with child. And so you can imagine um, the hormonal gyrations of an already unstable mother um, create some, some fun. And uh, you, you have a history of placing these books from a time perspective around holidays. I do. This one is around Thanksgiving, which brings up another interesting conundrum that Lucky's mother uh, has to spend time dealing with. And that's that there are – she ordered a a thousand turkeys to feed the poor. She did. (laughs) Not realizing that they would be live turkeys. That's right. (laughs) So anyway, you know, and I I, I do – for some reason I like farm animals. I don't know why in these books, but they keep turning up. And um, in this book, we have the turkeys and Mona's problem with the turkeys. And, um, and then we also have a truffle pig. And I know before anybody tells me, you know, wants to call and tell me that they don't use pigs to find truffles anymore. I know that. They use dogs generally because dogs can smell them just as well and, and tend to not want to eat them once they've found the truffle. And that was the problem with the pigs. And the pigs can get big and, and unhappy when you take the truffle away. So, um, but uh, because this is Vegas and because it's a showcase and because everybody has to make a grand statement in some way, uh, one of the chefs uh, who owns the prize truffle, there's a prize Alba truffle, um, decides to bring a truffle pig from France and put it in um, one of the bungalows, which um, are the premier places to stay at the Babylon. They're therefore royalty and, and even Cher doesn't always get a bungalow. So um, they are for the very, very uh, wealthy, high-end people that come to Vegas. And Lucky um, comes to the office one day to find that, that she has a rather large pig ensconced in um, one of her best bungalows. So anyway, it's, uh, it, it's fun. It's the stories are meant, it's, it's, just exactly like the other lucky stories um, in that it's Vegas, it's fun, it's, it's, they are romantic mysteries. There are certainly relationships that are very character-driven. Uh, the murders are sometimes silly, um, sometimes not, and this book probably falls somewhere in the middle. And um, I actually killed three people in this book. I must have been really angry when I wrote it. But um, it seemed like every time I sat down, I wanted to kill somebody. So I don't know what that says, but I went ahead and did it. And um, there's a lot going on, as usual. And most of my readers like that. Every now and then I'll get somebody who will say, oh, my God, the plot was, you know, there were people running all over the place. And, you know, but that sort of captures Vegas. Um, There are people running all over the place in Vegas. And if you made it too um, mundane or too state or, or too one dimensional, um, I think I would lose something in the story. So anyway, that that's lucky catch the foodie, the foodie world gone crazy in Vegas. All right. So this, this show is called the author biz. So one of the things we focus on is business and you've gone through something that's interesting to me and will be interesting. I think to a lot of listeners where you've transitioned from a, traditional big five publisher to a new style publisher. And I'd like, if you don't mind, to to just tell us how that happened and how it evolved and and what's different for you. Wow. Okay. Well, as you said, you know, I I did start out, I was very lucky, um, got a contract with 
a uh, with Forge Books, which is a, an imprint of Macmillan, one of the big five that are remaining mm-hmm. um, in New York, and so excited and so validated as a writer, especially as a fiction writer. That's that's the golden egg. That's what you shoot for. That's what you've you've shot for your whole career, sitting there slaving away. And as you know. You know, writing really bad books at the beginning and going through horrible rewrites and and licking your ruins and and wondering why you're ever going to do this again. And you spend all of this time and effort for what? You know, you don't know. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to get a a publishing contract with a New York publisher and be published well, which means hardcover followed by mass market um, national distribution. And, um, And I was lucky enough to get that as well. And so I thought I had it made. Well, I signed the contract for Want to Get Lucky in December of 2008. And we all know that that right after that, the economy just slid into the ooze and, and went south in a hurry. And by the time the publisher actually got Want to Get Lucky into the bookstores, it was May 11th of 2010. I know that because I'm looking at something on my wall that is a proclamation by Oscar Goodman, the mayor of Las Vegas at the time, (laughs) um, who made that date want to get lucky day in Las Vegas. So, um, and I have his proclamation. But anyway, it took all that time from December 2008 to May of 2010 to get my book that was already written um, out into the bookstores. And there had been a seismic change. Um, in publishing um, that had certainly begun um, in earnest in that time frame. And with Amazon and Amazon opening the door to digital first publishing uh, to anybody who wanted to publish anything, which is a whole nother um, topic. But um, for, for the first time ever, writers had another option for their stories. Instead of, of, of beating on the door for decades in New York, trying to get somebody to pay attention to what you've written. And there are so many horror stories about, you know, agent bad behavior, um, publishers dropping the ball, just people who have written good stories who never, ever got into, into the New York publishing universe for whatever reason. Um, the timing was bad. They didn't get their book in front of the right person at the right time. You know, just who knows? But it's a very hard world to get into, and you have to be. People ask me how I did it, and I said, I was so incredibly lucky. It's, yeah, I wrote a good book, but I know a lot of people that have written good books, and I just got really lucky. And and so, you know, I went through the whole traditional pathway uh, of putting out out books, and I was under contract to them for eventually five books. What was the was your first contract for two or three? It was for two. Okay, and then they signed me up quickly for two more, and then uh, we did one. Uh, we signed actually Lucky Catch, which is coming out now, was um, under contract to them as well. In this, in this. You know, of course, I always do everything the hard way. You know, I had to pick to be a debut author uh, when publishing was changing so dramatically. And New York is still trying to catch up to what's happening 
in, in the universe, in the publishing universe, and they really don't know how to react to um, the pressure on pricing, the, the ebook um, accessibility, the digital accessibility. Um, they don't know how to take advantage of it. They don't, you know, and, and they're trying to figure out how all of that works in their paradigm. And traditional publishing, I think, you know, yeah, it works really great if you're Lee Child and Sandra Brown and Scott Turow and James Patterson and, mm-hmm. you know, the people that have been at the top of the heap, they're going to continue to be at the top of the heap. They have a well-entrenched readership um, that knows what they're getting and will pay twenty four ninety five for a hardcover. But actually, that's not true because all of those bestsellers, if you go into Barnes & Noble... When a, when a new Lee Child book comes out, generally it's on the center table right as you walk in, and it's discounted at least 30%. Yeah, sometimes 40 Most of the time, 40 yeah. today. And, and the only people that get that discount advantage are generally bestsellers um, because that's who Barnes & Noble wants you know, to use to bring the readers into the store. You know, when when my book came out, well, Barnes and Noble didn't want it on the center table, and they weren't going to let it be in the discount program. So Janet Ivanovich puts out a book, and it's discounted forty percent. And I put out a book, and it's twenty four ninety five. Which book do you think readers are going to buy? <laughs> and so that's what I was up against, and I was too stupid to really figure out what was going on until I had traveled around the country on book tour a bit and listened to booksellers and listened to book readers and finally started piecing this this whole business model together and knowing that full well by tomorrow it will be slightly different than it is today. But if if you fast forward to today from May of 2010 when I first started out with Want to Get Lucky in the Stores, Look at what's happened. You know, we have, you know, Amazon. Everybody thinks that Amazon is the great Satan. Um, well, everybody in traditional publishing thinks that Amazon is the great Satan. Or at least 900 or 899 people or 901 oh, don't or whatever. Oh, you started on that letter. Oh, my God. You know, um, represent writers? Yes, oh, that oh was... no, I don't think so. Anyway, don't get me started. Is Amazon um, a scary company? Sure. They have a lot of power. But so does Walmart, so does Costco, so did Barnes & Noble. Remember the hue and cry when Barnes & Noble and Borders came in and started putting the indie sellers out of business? Yep. You know, remember the hue and cry with Walmart when all the mom-and-pop shops in town were going out of business because everybody wanted to go get it cheaper at Wally World? You know, we got the same thing going on here. And whether writers like it or not, writers tend to think that, that what they produce is great art, which makes me laugh. Um, it's a product like any other. Now, does it have some artistic um, qualities? Absolutely. But um, it's become slightly commoditized, just, just like every other product. And readers want it cheaper. And if they can get it cheaper, they're going to buy it cheaper. And so in this country, it's illegal to artificially collude or collude to artificially inflate um, prices on things and keep them high, as the big publishers and, um, and Apple discovered. Um, what what's there to do about it? I happen to think that um, there are some real downsides to Amazon being open to the universe, um, but the upsides so far outweigh it. 
um, for readers and for writers. Writers have so many more outlets, so many ways to make, to scratch out a living um, doing what they love and to interact with readers, and readers can read more. I found that I probably read 10 times at least more than I did before I had a Kindle. Hmm. And now, you know, I'll see a book, uh, I'll read a review, or somebody will tell me about it, I pull out my phone, I buy it, you know, and I download it, and it's there when I'm ready to read it, and I sit down and I read it. Before, I had to remember the title, which... That didn't happen, you know, nine times out of ten. Mm -hmm. Then I had to go somewhere and buy it. Generally, they didn't have it. So then I had to order it, and then I had to go back and get it again. And, you know, four or five times when I'm paying to download it in 30 seconds to my iPad. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it depends on your philosophy of, of how to make money. Do you want to sell something a whole lot fewer things at a higher price, or do you want to sell a whole lot more at a lower price. And I'm sort of of the second um, group. I'd rather have a whole lot more readers reading my books and talking about it um, than fewer. So, and the money actually is greater. Um, at some point, there's, you know, there's a point at which um, the, the, the economics crosses and the, and the velocity of sales becomes so great that you make more money selling at a lower price. And if you have confidence in your work and in yourself... Why not bet on yourself? Sure, why not? But you know, you got to realize you're no longer a writer. You are a business person. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, you create the product, but you are responsible for advertising, promoting, marketing, branding the product, and selling it. And you're responsible for quality control. You're responsible for the artwork that goes into it. You're responsible for all of it. And a lot of writers don't want to do that. And so traditional publishing or a small, a smaller press, it, you know, they'll do, they'll do that work for you, not the marketing and, and promo stuff. That's going to be left to you anyway for the most part. Um, but they'll do all of, you know, sort of that making the book look good and, and um, you know, be pretty for you. But at what price? And they do all the things that you may not know how to do and, and may not want to learn how to do. Well, but you can hire all those people. Right. I, I, I understand that. Yeah. And, uh, but it's scary. It can be scary. It is because you have no idea what you're doing. None. This is not – you know, when I started out doing this, this is not my business. My business is writing. It's not knowing what kind of covers do you put on a romantic mystery. You know, what, what do readers respond to? What do they look like? You know, how, how in the world do you format this thing for all the different digital platforms? You know, how do you do that? How do you upload it to all the different digital platforms? You know, how, you know, how to, editing, content editing, line editing, you know, it, it's a mess. And so all of that had just been sort of provided for me. Um, for a great deal of, of money, but um, it was it was provided through my publisher, and I didn't have to learn about it. I could could go around patting myself on the back and saying, "Gee, isn't this great? You're you're an artist. You're a writer." And um, let, let let all those people deal with all of that, the little stuff. But um, actually, I you know I love business, and I'm very entrepreneurial. As you know, I have an authority issue. And so um, I like to be in charge, and, uh, and I will, um, 
you know, I'll be very happy taking the blame for a bad decision as long as I have the opportunity to make that decision. You know, I, I, the, the best, the best thing about being able to manage my publishing career is I know what's going on. I know what people are doing. I know that I've hired somebody to do this or that, or, and I know, you know, what they're doing, whether it's setting up a blog tour or coming up with a cover, you know, I, I know what's going on. I know how the pieces are coming together. And if I finish a book today, I can put it in production and I can have it, I can have it uploaded to Amazon, fully copy edited, line edited, cover, you know, formatted and all of the, you know, outside three weeks. You know, in traditional publishing, you're looking at a year to 18 months. Was the change in speed difficult to get used to, or did you just kind of throw yourself right into it? Oh, I was so happy with that. That was the part I was looking forward to um, the most. You know, the thing, you know, when we first started talking today, sort of off the record, and I said, well, how'd you like the fifth book? You know, when I picked up the fifth book and and got ready to publish it myself, because I'd finally made the choice and made the transition and, and all of that, I didn't even remember what it was about. I had finished it so long ago. Yeah, you and I talked about the book. You, you had already written it the first when I first met you a year and a half ago. Right. And right. I didn't, uh, I didn't it was way it was in the about. rearview mirror then. Yeah, and so um, you know, and so even now I'm sort of like, well, I, you know, I don't, I, and I've been through it a million times, you know, since I picked it back up and and put it in the in the publishing, you know, um, slop shoot. And, you know, and I'm, and I'm happy with it. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been published. But I wouldn't have let it go until I was happy with it. But it's funny because um, it stayed front and center in my head during the whole publishing thing. And, and then all of a sudden, it's, it's launched out into the world and people are reading it. And, and it's wonderful because you can let go of it at that point. It's done. You know, you've written it, you've published it. People are either going to love it or they hate it or, or somewhere in between. And, and that's all done now. You know, you can market it and, and hope for the best, but you can move on. And in traditional publishing, when that book is sitting, you know, in the queue somewhere for a year to a year and a half, you can't let it go. It's always sitting out there. And in the back of your mind, you're going, well, should I, should I pick it up again? Should I should I go through it one more time and look at it, rewriting it, you know, while it's sitting? Well, you know, you can't do that now. You better be on your game and it's done and it's gone. And, and usually when you rewrite and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite and you have too much time to rewrite, all you end up doing is moving words around and not making it any better. So there is a point that you quit and move on. Mm-hmm. And this allows you to, to publish it and, and monetize it and put more product out there, which is really what readers want. And that's what gets you readers. It's, it's writing the next good book. One of the things that, and you're absolutely right, that's the best thing that any author can do is, is always be writing the next good book. Right. That's um, all we got. Yes. You know? But there are all these other things that you have to do now uh, in addition to writing the good book. But let's get back to that. I want to ask okay. you a mindset question. Okay. Because, you know, anyone that's, our age, you and I are roughly the same age. Um, 27. 27, yes. Well, I'm 28. (laughs) Okay. Uh, You know, (laughs) we have experienced some things in life and our self-image changes from time to time from, you know, there was a point when I was, I had a a good-sized business and I had a ton of people reporting to me or working for me and then I didn't anymore because we sold the business. 
and right. my mindset changed. I'm no longer a guy that owns this business that hires all these people. Now I'm a guy that works from home doing these other things. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? And I had to kind of come to terms with that. Do you have to do the same thing when you go from being traditionally published, uh, you know, getting the the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that that all writers are searching for that big contract with the big five publisher to all of a sudden you go, eh, it's not really what I thought it was. That, that was the hardest thing for me, and I deal with it every day. Um, and it's, it's 90% ego because the logical side of my brain goes, but, 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 you know, that, that traditional publishing paradigm for somebody like you doesn't work anymore. You know, there, there's something else that is going to work better for you. And I know that, but it was, it was, it's such an ego satisfaction thing to, to be a traditionally published author. There are a lot of doors that are open to you that aren't open to me as, um, as, uh, somebody who's not with one of the big five anymore. And we'll get to what, what I'm doing later publishing wise, but, um, you know, some of the big review sites and, and some of the independent booksellers and the direct distribution, easy distribution in the libraries and some of those things still aren't, they're coming online for people like me now or people in my position, um, but they're, they're not quite like they used to be um, when I was at a traditional publisher and that was just automatic, all of those um, things are in place mm-hmm. and the sales force at the publisher and the people selling to the libraries and, you know, all of that just worked like magic and I didn't have to even think about it. And one of the biggest stumbling blocks for me in terms of making the transition that I did was, um, my library sales were really good. And I thought, well, what, you know, what, what's going to happen now? You know, are they going to follow me? Are they going to buy my books and, and all of that? And I thought, you know, I can't, finally, I just said, I don't know. I can't, you know, all I can do is set it up so that they can, you know, buy my books. And if they want them, they will. But the future of publishing, in my, in my opinion, and there's tons of opinions, but it is, it is so much into the digital world. I mean, I would be signing books at bookstores or doing library events or whatnot, and people would come up to me, and, and I'd have all my books in, in the mass market paperback, so they're five ninety five or seven ninety five, sitting in front of me. So they're not that expensive, and they pick them up and they look at me and they go, "Oh, these sound great!" And they take one of my cards and then they look at me and say, "Can I download it to my Kindle?" <laughs> and I'd say, "Yes, you can." And they'd say, "Sweet!" And take the card and walk off. And so, I mean, it happened to me more times than not. Um, at these events, and I thought, you know, here's, you know, here's, it's, you know, it's not really empirical evidence, but, but it's anecdotal evidence right here, you know, of, of what people are doing and how they are consuming what I'm producing, and I need to pay attention. And um, one of the great things about digital books is they're there forever. And just because I publish Lucky Catch, it comes out Tuesday, the 26th, um, of August, of because August. people may be listening yeah. to this six months from now. Oh, okay. Of August 2014, mm-hmm. um, just because it comes out then, and and maybe it doesn't hit the bestseller list the first week. You know what? It could hit the bestseller list a year from now. 
Yes, yes. And that's so many people don't get that. Julie and I were talking about that the other night. The idea of the pressure on the traditionally published author to sell a ton of books in a very short period of time to stay on the shelves in the bookstores and to generate this buzz, and that pressure is not there for someone who is not Big Five published because a, the books yeah. are there. It's great, and you know. I mean, it was it was horrifying if you think about it. You know, you have you have spent a year writing a book, give or take. Mm-hmm. You know, a year of your life, your everything that you've got going into that story. Then you have gone through copy edits, line edits, covers, you know, whatnot for another year to eighteen months, and then so so okay, we're looking at two to two and a half years not including how long it took you to think up the idea in the first place and refine it. And then you have six weeks to sell it. That's it. Yeah. Maybe, if you're lucky. Six weeks. And yeah. then it's gone. And it's if, not, if five you know, other authors who write like you do but are, are maybe better known release books about the same time, you have no chance. Yeah, you're screwed. Yeah. And that's it. And then your books are gone. And you go, I, I you know... All that time and effort and hope and, and dreaming and, and praying and working and slaving for, for a shot that's, that's no more, a window that opens for no longer than six weeks. And now I will admit that um, I won't go sign books in Barnes & Noble anymore because that's how they do business. And they're horrible booksellers, and I loathe them for many, many reasons, which we will not go into here. Uh, the point I was going to make was that independent booksellers— have been incredibly wonderful to me. And they are what I consider to be, I mean, they're a huge asset um, in this country. They're a meeting place for people who love stories or just love knowledge, um, love art and culture and and all those things. And the, the bookstores that are doing it right, and there are a good many of them all over the country, are creating um, within their store this little crucible for people to come and share ideas about books. Um, the stores hire people who actually read and really like books. And so you can go in and get a, um, an educated um, recommendation from, from a reader based on, on your reading habits and what you like as to what you might like. And so I am so happy to see the resurgence of independent bookstores and um, in, in light of uh, Borders going out of business, which I was sad about, Borders actually was a really good bookstore. They just over-leveraged themselves. And, and Barnes & Noble, um, which you know how I feel about them. But, um, you know, it's very nice to see the independent bookstores um, have that passion and the, the owners have that passion and to be able to, to sort of stick it out while this whole book-selling craziness is, um, you know, everybody's fighting it out from the big five to Amazon to Barnes and Noble that keeps circling the drain. I don't know why they won't go down it. And, um, you know, and so it's, it's funny to see how the shelf space issue, the pricing issue, um, the formatting issue, you know, um, it's, it's all going to shake out. I think there's room for everybody and there's, there's demand for all different forms of my books, there are a lot of people that still like to read them in print. I am doing a print version, absolutely. It's not just digital. Well, let's 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 get to that. You made this transition to new style publishing, but to do that, 
it was important for you to get the rights back to the books that you'd already written. How did you go about that? Well, first of all, you're absolutely right because I, I needed to have control of them so that I can price them in a way um, that will help bring people to the series and will support this next book in the series and those sales and hopefully you know future books in the series. And if I didn't have control of all the books that had come before this one, then I didn't really know how I was going to market the fifth one. You know, how I was going to be proactive in the marketplace. I could, you know, tell everybody it was available and I could price it the way I wanted, but I didn't have nearly as much marketing leverage um, as I do with controlling all the other books. Because I can give them away for free. I can price them at 99 cents for a couple of days and, you know, generate some interest. And, and people will take a flyer on the series and maybe they'll like it, you mm -hmm. know, and then maybe they'll buy the other books. So Now, I, I talk to people all the time who are in the position that you were in, and they say, well, I won't I, – I don't have the rights. I can't get the rights back. Mm -hmm. And you were probably in a, a similar position, but you took some action. I did. I did. And that, I think that is what I would tell every author out there is get a lawyer, look at your contract. Now, I didn't go this way because I had a different scenario, but, and I also am a lawyer. But um, look at your contract. Be absolutely clear on when your books go out of print, what your rights are, you know, what you can ask for. And then understand what your publisher is doing and make a case that if they're not publishing your books, if they're not keeping them in print, if they're not being proactive in, in pushing your career, then make a case that, um, that you should get your rights back because that's the way you make a living. And you're going to run up against brick walls. A lot of writers are doing it. But the ones that are succeeding at getting their rights back are the ones that are persistent. And just keep pushing. And, and so that's, you know, I was fairly persistent. And actually, I just approached the publisher and uh, you're not doing all this stuff so I get my rights back. I just said, give me a number. How much would it cost me? How much would I have to pay you to get my books back? And um, they started looking at the numbers and, and we ended up with some dialogue and, and I ended up, you know, with my rights back. Um, did I buy them all back? No, I bought the fifth book back. But, um, you know, we made our own deal and it was based on our own set of circumstances. And I really don't want to, you know, say what the deal was, but I'm, I'm very glad to, to be in control of my books again. And I'm also very, very grateful to have had the traditional publishing opportunity. To be honest with you, um, it, it did a lot of things for my career, for my self-esteem as a writer, um, for, for just developing readership um, that I'm not, I don't know if I could have done it on my own, but I know that I worked with a team of professionals that love books and they did their best and they taught me a lot. And, you know, they're hamstrung by their corporate philosophies. Um, and that's, you know, that's just the way traditional publishing is. But I've never worked with anybody that I thought was uh, bad or ugly or not out for my best interests or didn't like books or, you know, or whatever. Um, there are no, there is no side of, of saintly goodness and side of evil in this. It's just different choices for different people. And traditional publishing, as we've you know articulated, can offer you certain things that going a different route can't. 
and each writer has to make um, a, the best choice for him or herself. And one of the best things that I heard, um, it actually came from Sylvia Day, and I asked her um, about you know publishing because she sort of publishes all over the, you know, she's been traditionally published. She's done this huge deal with Cosmopolitan. She's been indie published. You know, she's done all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I said, how in the world, you know, do do you do all of this? And she said, well, I said, what, what drives these decisions? And she said, when I finish a book, she said, all I do is I sit down and go, okay, where is the best place for this book? Who is going to publish it the best? And at the time she told me, I only had an inkling into how different the selling process is for different genres. I just thought it's a book. You know, you, you, you sell a book. It's a mystery book. It's a thriller. It's a romance. It's an erotic book. You know, it's inspirational. It's cozy. It's whatever. It's just a book. You sell it. Well, no, not so much. It's very different in formatting how the books are sold, where they get shelf space, where they find their readership. Um, it's, it's very different for each genre. And, and that was sort of where I got hammered was that we put Lucky into mystery. And yes, there's a mystery in it, but there's also a very strong, you know, romantic component. It's not a romance, but it's very character driven, as you know, and, and relationships in the book, be they male, female or, or friends or parents and children or whatever are very important to me. So I, I, I have that as a big component of my book. Well, what happened was we sold it as a mystery and, and we just bypassed the entire women's fiction um, and contemporary romance readership because they don't buy books the way mysteries are sold. And, and so I thought all along when I wrote Lucky, it wasn't a mystery. It was really a romance, you know, and it really would appeal more to that group than to the hard-boiled mystery, you know, people because by mysteries certainly aren't hard-boiled. And... Um, and I didn't, but I didn't realize at the time that that they buy books so differently, those two genres, and that makes a huge difference in your decision making um, going forward as a writer into how you're going to publish those books. Now, what do you mean they buy they buy books differently? Well, the romance genre has has been a huge driver of the digital marketplace. Um, number one, there's, there's very little shelf space for romances, given the volume of romances that are written in any bookstore. It's, it's very little compared to um, just the, the sheer quantity of, of books that are, are written. Romance readers read voraciously, mm-hmm. far faster than mystery readers do. They just consume these things like, like candy bars. And... And then there was there romance has always been sort of the ugly stepchild of of the the writing world. You know, it was just considered something you know those women do, and um, and it wasn't given the accolades and the prestige that um, that mystery and thriller writers um, got. And literary fiction, of course, is a whole different um, ball game, and so. They and so a lot of people apparently were embarrassed at being seen sitting in the airport or in a public place reading a Harlequin romance or a you know a, something with a bodice ripper cover on it. Mm-hmm. And so they were thrilled when you could download it to your Kindle. 
No, you could have been reading War and Peace for for what anybody knew sitting next to you. Um, you know, and so you could read all the romances you wanted sitting there, and nobody would know that that's what you were reading. And now I think that world has changed, and the romance writers and readers have demanded um, the respect that they are due. And it's it's just as hard to write a really good romance as it is to write a really good mystery. And and so I think they're starting to get a lot more respect in the marketplace. But still, it is the largest uh, of the genres sold on um, uh, in the digital marketplace. Uh, mystery and thriller is is catching up, but more slowly. And and so if you're going to sell a romance, if that's what you've written and you want to access those readers, by God, you better be in the digital universe. You won't find them walking the aisles at Barnes and Noble. You will, you, but you will find them online, in in blogs, chat rooms, Goodreads, you know, Facebook. You know, you will you will find rabid, rabid romance readers and writers on on those uh, venues. And so I didn't realize that when we put a hardcover twenty four ninety five mystery out in Barnes and Noble and it got stuck in the mystery section that there was probably one romance reader in the entire universe that picked it up <laughs> and um and that made me sad because I really thought that 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 readership would like the stories as well um because of the romance and I can tell you to this day of all the emails that I've gotten. Um, I have yet to have somebody write me an email about the mystery. It's always about the relationships. And um, so that's what people are interested in. And in the way we put the books out, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't go find those readers. And so the books had no chance of, of really finding a huge marketplace in the beginning um, because we just bypassed them all. And, and yet... It was this all happened with the first book, and then there was the second, and the third, and the fourth, and nothing changed. The publisher kept doing the same thing, and that was when I finally said, "You know the definition of stupid." <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm just just asking. You know, and uh, something's not working here. So, you know, if we keep doing the same thing, expecting different results, then what are we? Okay, so and, we yeah. we made a big change. We did. And we're yeah. not doing the same thing anymore. We're, we're no. publishing differently. We're publishing. You've rebranded the entire series, and I think brilliantly rebranded the entire series. So walk us, through, walk us through that and, and what that process was like for you. Well, um, as you know, I am a, and you tease me about it all the time, I am a, um, an, an, average, a, an avid consumer of information. And I love to do um, to do research and to know what other people are doing. So for about two years at least, you know, I've been doing a lot of research into um, whether you want to call it indie pubbing, self-pubbing, digital first publishing, you know, whatever, alternate publishing mm-hmm. venues. Um, because I just could see the, the writing on the wall. You know, change was coming. And actually, to be honest with you, as forward-thinking as I am, I was still about two years behind the curve. And that was my ego that held me up there. And I, I came across a couple of years ago a man by the name of Bob uh, Mayer. And he was actually a Tor Forge author back in the day, as I recall. Um, forgive me, Bob, if I'm misquoting, but, um, but I think he was. 
And, but he'd been a big New York Times bestseller, was, you know, sort of riding the crest of traditional publishing. And um, he, he writes um, thrillers and some sci-fi stuff. And, I mean, he just, he's got tons and tons of great books out there that are fabulous fun. But he um, and his, his cohort, Jen Talty, um, sort of started looking at how publishing was going and they were some of the first sort of into um, the digital universe and the alternate um, ways of publishing back before. I mean, they had to piece it all together, one, one relationship at a time, with whether it was with Ingram and Baker and Taylor, the big wholesalers and distributors, with Amazon, with Apple, with, you know, with whomever. I mean, there's tons of things, and lots of work um, went into it. But I found Bob's blog, and um, he blogs every Wednesday um, about just, just publishing stuff and whatever he feels like talking about. And I, and I really thought he was sort of... I don't know, just a bright light um, uh, or a, a lone, a clear voice in all the cacophony of, of chaos that was happening in publishing. And so I started following his blog. And, and then I realized that one of the really neat things that, that he was doing was he was not only publishing himself, but he would periodically, he and Jen um, were publishing themselves, and then they would periodically accept other authors, generally ones that have been in the traditional world, um, sort of know what the business is about, know what to expect, know how hard you have to work, you know, 19 hours a day on this stuff. And, and, um, and they would accept people in, into their fold, and they would... Um, they they would make it's a handshake agreement with them, and they do sort of all the things that a traditional publisher would do for um, for a lot less money um, and time from the writer, and and it's it's really a working partnership because if we all sell books, we all benefit, which is what traditional publishing should be, but they don't quite seem to get it um, that that's the way it works. And so about, gosh, it hadn't been that long ago. Um, what month is it, August? Um, last spring, this past spring, I reached out to Bob and Jen and said, you know, I really like what you guys are saying and I really like what, what you guys are doing. You know, I don't know if I'm the kind of author that that you, you know, want in your fold, but would you take a look at my stuff and, and if you're interested, you know, give me a shout. And so they were very kind and um, offered to work with me and to let me work with them. And it has just been so much fun, even though they laugh at me each day because I still... I'm like, well, what about libraries and what about, you know, the print books? And they're like, Deb, this is digital. <laughs> you know, we're focusing on digital. Remember, long tail. You know, these books have a long tail. Yes, we will take care of those markets, but don't spend all of your time worrying about them. You know, focus, focus to the future. And I really, truly believe in my heart of hearts they're right. Otherwise, I wouldn't have, you know, um, jumped in their rowboat and taken up an oar. So, um, it, they have been extraordinarily kind in, in sharing what they know and in helping and, and in just talking to me about 
um, the future of, of publishing. And I really think that if not exactly as they put it together, very, very close, I think will be um, a form of publishing that works really, really well um, it, going forward. I think uh, one of the problems that, that they will have is that, um, you know, they said, we just need a handshake agreement from you. And I thought, you know, you're going to change that going forward. I'm a lawyer. <laughs> you're going to change that, you know. And, um, but, but what they ask of, of the writer is so spot on. And what they give you in return for what they ask you pay, to pay them. And, and it's hinged on sales. And um, so it's not really out of pocket. It's, it's they make money if I make money. It's a royalty split just like you had with your traditional publisher. It where is, they, exactly. Except but it's you much get a lot more. more. Fair. Yeah. yeah, it's much more fair. Yeah. So just um, to be to, clear, we're not saying yeah. that you're paying them to publish these books. Right. They're taking a royalty split just like Macmillan would do. Correct. Except but a le- lot less. Less than half. Less, yes. Way less than half of what Macmillan took. And so, um, you know, I, I am a, that kind of personality. I love working with a team, but I need my space and I need my autonomy and I need be, to be able to call somebody and say, you know, I'm not sure that we did this correctly. What do you think and how can we change it? And have somebody actually respond. You know, I didn't have that experience in, um, in traditional publishing until the very end. And then my publisher, God bless them, and I love them all, um, you know, was, was sort of willing to work with me a little bit going forward, but of course not making any grand promises. And at that point, I think I just had had enough. And um, it wasn't really, it wasn't their choice that I left, it was mine. And um, because I just couldn't deal with not... Um, having any say over anything, really, um, you know, that happened to my books. It's just like you, in traditional publishing, I mean, you write a book and you just might as well throw it down a well. And, um, you know, oh, they may run some cover covers by you and, and they'll give you the line edits, and but, you know, um, you, don't, you don't really get to, to pull some strings and play with things and play with pricing and you know, I would call my editor and say, okay, well, well, let's try and down price, you know, want to get lucky for, you know, in the digital market when, you know, when another Lucky Stiff or, or So Damn Lucky or Lucky Bastard came out. Well, well, I, you know, I have to take that to the digital department. And, and then, well, then, of course, then they'll have to sign off it. And then somebody else will have to sign off of it. And then, well, by the time it made through all those departments, I was already ready to publish the next book. And um, so it was... That was frustrating because now I can do something and I can see immediately uh, whether it has any effect or not on sales. And so I can say, well, we won't do that again, you know, or wow, that that worked out better than I thought. How can we refine that? And that is has got to be so much fun. I love doing experiments with websites and things like that and being able to experiment with pricing and just turn a knob and see what happens. It's just got to be exhilarating when you can yeah, do that. Yeah, but that's because you're an entrepreneur and so am I. Yes, and that is really the key personality trait in this whole thing is you really have to have that entrepreneurial spirit and you have to be be able to number 1 work as hard as it takes to to do all this stuff and you can imagine it's overwhelming sometimes there's always more that could be done 
you know, and so at some point at the end of the day, you have to fold it up and say, you know, it'll be there tomorrow, you know, and I'll just keep hacking away at it. And, um, and you have to be very disciplined about, okay, for this many hours today, I'm going to have my business person hat on. Mm-hmm. And for this many hours today, I'm going to go, you know, into my office and write my next story. Because if I don't have another story, well, then all of this is sort of for naught. You know, what's the point? And, um, and that's very hard, too. That was a discipline that I had to um, learn and I fight with every day. Um, and, it, you know, that sort of balance changes. You know, since I'm doing a book launch next week, of course, I'm spending more time than I'd like uh, doing Facebook and Goodreads and, you know, mm-hmm. all of those things and less time writing. But, you know, within a few weeks, that will, will shift back. And I do marketing every day and I do writing every day, seven days a week. Yeah, and we could we could call marketing marketing, and we could call writing product creation, and right. uh, you've got product design, and you've got all these things that you've you've got your finger in all these different pies now, and it sounds like you're enjoying it. Oh, I'm having a blast! But what really helped was was finding my team, you know, and that's what's so overwhelming because when you first look at it as a writer, and you think, oh my god, I can't. There's no way I can learn all that I need to learn to to do this properly. Now, I can do it poorly, uh, but I, I can't do it well. You know, there's just too much information out there. There's too many things I need to know. I don't want to learn how to format a book for a Mobi file or an EPUB file. or I, I don't even want to know how to do that. And um, I can't even strip formatting out of a Word document. So, you know, I'm hopeless. Um, that would be just death to me to have to learn that. But then all of a sudden I realized, you know what? I, I can hire people to do that. <laughs> and I can hire professionals who it's been their life blood to create covers for different kinds of, of different genre books. I can, I can hire them. And, and, oh, glory be to God, I can hire a virtual assistant who will plan and monitor blog tours and, you know, just all the minutia and will just send me a list of things I have to write. You know when they ha- when they have to be done by. Yeah. You know, speaking of yeah. cover designers, I pulled out uh, the. I have four hardback books of the first first four, as you know, since you sent me three of them. Um, <laughs> I um, I put them all together, and from a branding perspective, other than the word "lucky" on the mm-hmm. cover, there's none. And uh, I look at the covers you have now, and it's it's clearly a family of books. And when I when I looked up. You, your author, your your list of books, there were some others down at the bottom that weren't you, but they were obviously not you because the covers didn't look the same. Right, right. And yeah, so- and that was what that was one of our goals at, you know, in traditional publishing was to get covers that were that looked the same and and we didn't do that. Uh, you know, they were sort of in the same but they look like chiclet books and these are not chiclet books even though I like chiclet. They're not chiclet. And so um, you know, it was just, I thought, you know, when we, when we went forward with, um, Bob and Jen and, and Cool Gus Publishing is the name of their, um, I, I call it a consortium. It's not really, um, it's, that it's a, it's a collegial consortium. Um, and, and it's just fabulous. And Bob named it after his dog, which of course attracted me immediately. I thought, okay, <laughs> here's a guy with the right approach. You know, let's not take everything so seriously and let's have some fun with this and do it right. But let's remember we're selling entertainment here. 
And so, you know, when I, when I first went with them, you know, they were going to have to redo the covers because even though I'd gotten the rights back to the, to the stories, the covers were not mine. And, and so, you know, I said, look, I said, these books are romantic mysteries. There, I know that there's no true genre called romantic mystery, but there are enough of them out there that you sort of know what I'm talking about. And Jen, of course, she's the designer, and, and she's the brains behind all of the technical stuff. That's, she's just a whiz. It's amazing. I mean, literally, I can email her and ask for something, and before I get up from my desk, after the email goes, it's back in my computer. She did the cover design, and, and she knows. And so I said, let's make it look mystery, but let's do something that indicates that there's, like, people involved and not just dead bodies. And so what she came up with, with, the, you know, the couple on the top and then, you know, something that looks a little bit, you know, mystery-ish, you know, down below. I like that. And the poker chip. Or the, yeah, and the, the poker and chip. And the chip. I mean, it's just, it's really good. They're all well-branded, and you've got a new tagline. Right. Heartfelt right. Mysteries. A heartfelt mysteries, yeah. and um, that that sort of came from um, C.J. Lyons, who does. She writes. What's her tagline? Thrillers oh. with heart. Yeah, with a heart or something like yeah, that. Yeah, something like that. And I thought, well, I can't use mysteries with a heart. She'll come and eviscerate mine. <laughs> but um, but I thought, you know, how would I get the same sort of point across? You know, and so I just came up with heartfelt mysteries, and and. Uh, and so I, li- I really like the way it's turned out. I, I really like the cover for Lucky Catch. And I think when somebody picks it up, if a guy picks it up, he's not going to be off-put by the pink and green on the cover because there is none. You know, it's a, it's a building in Las Vegas um, that's sort of the center point. And, um, yeah, there are a couple, uh, guy and a gal at the top of the book, but, you know, it's not like they're, you know, ripping the clothes off of each other or in some incredible clinch. Yeah, I it, think I, I obviously look at a lot of books. And if I saw that cover and had no idea what the book was about, I would be interested in it because oh, well, it's good. the kind of thing that I would like to read. Now, you've got all this new freedom now in this new publishing world, mm-hmm. and, and so you're also pursuing a different style of book. So let's, I am. Let's, let's talk for a little bit about that. Well, you know, it's funny. When, when I set out to write Want to Get Lucky, I, I never intended to write a mystery. Um, I don't really read a lot of mysteries. I do now because I write them, but that wasn't the genre that, that I really liked to read. And when I was younger, I read a lot of romantic suspense, um, and, I, and I really love, I mean, I'm female, okay? You know, I love stories with a romance. It, you know, it doesn't have to be over-the-top romance. It can just be sexual tension. That's fine, too, but just so long as there's a guy and a gal. And, and, and that's an important part of the story. And when I, when I wrote Want to Get Lucky, I was such a baby writer, and I was just too stupid to figure out how to keep the narrative drive going without a murder mystery, without a dead body. Um, I thought, how in the world do I keep anybody interested in if, if we're not chasing a killer? And so I put a mystery in it, and I didn't, to be honest with you, I didn't think the mystery was all that... Grand. It wasn't meant to be. Um, it wasn't the focal point for me as the writer of the story. That's not what I thought the story was about. I'll show you how stupid I was. And so I ended up, um, because of my inability to figure out how to write women's fiction, I ended up uh, writing mysteries. And that's okay. And sometimes I like writing the mystery, and other times I think, ugh. 
I just hate plotting the mystery. You know how? Because I'm telling the book in the first person. So the reader can't know anything that Lucky doesn't know because Lucky's telling the story. And so how do you keep tension, suspense, and how do you dole out clues when Lucky is the sole storyteller? And so sometimes it can get to be a real pain in the you-know-what. And um, I'm, I'm whining less about it now, but it's certainly not the part of the book that I look forward to and that I have, um, you know, the most passion about it. I have passion about all of the book because I think it's just a kick to be able to put it all together and make it somehow come out, you know, in some semblance of, of rationality. Um, but I really am drawn to the emotional heart of the story. The, you know, and it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's Lucky's difficulties with um, her relationship with her father or her mother or, you know, the boyfriend that broke her heart or, you know, the new love, lover and, and all of his quirks and, and you know, what she wants. And, and then her own inner battle with herself and her vulnerabilities and her insecurities. And, and I, I love those layers in, in a story. And so now... I've decided to try to um, to just take the murder mystery out, and I am writing a series. The first book in a series, it's almost done. The first book is called Crushed, and the series is a four or five book series of, of women's fiction set in um, Napa County and Sonoma County. The second book is in Sonoma County, and it's a group of four or five women, depending on how many I want to um, tell their story. And it's just the first one is set in the wine world. Um, I know you're shocked by that, the title <laughs> crushed. And the second one is set in another industry that is very popular in, in Sonoma and in the artisanal cheese world. And, and so I'm going to explore a few of the, of the sort of farm-to-table farm kind of, of things that go on in, in Napa and Sonoma. And even though we think of them as these very highfalutin, expensive areas, they're really farming communities. And um, what they're doing up there is really a lot of fun, and the people are great, and, and it's a wonderful, exotic, bucolic, um, evocative uh, place to um, set a story and to tell stories. Because wine is, you know, it's very sensual. It's very, people have a lot of passion about it. And, and so it's, it's sort of fun. And I'm having a great time and I'm amazing myself that I'm actually writing a story that, that does move forward and have tension and have suspense and have conflict and all the things you want in a story. And, and I, so far I haven't talked to the police or shot anybody. And so are you planning on squeezing in another Lucky? Oh, yeah. Between those? Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm uh, about halfway through um, another Lucky novella uh, where actually I am, um, I take, uh, it's set in the music business in Vegas, and it's sort of a setup for the sixth novel, mm-hmm. um, although it won't be required reading to, you know, to read the sixth novel. That will stand alone. But um, I am letting, I, and I'm doing alternating first-person um, storytelling in that book because I just was intrigued with the idea, and I'm letting Lucky and her best friend, the investigative reporter, Flash. Okay, that'll uh, be fun. Tell, tell the story uh, from their points of view. Because we all want to know what is actually going on in Flash's mind. 
Well, and she, you know, she was always my spinoff character. She was the one that if I was going to, you know, because Lucky, Lucky is a competent woman. You know, she's going to have to pick a guy and, you know, go on about life. And so at that point, you know, I thought, well, maybe I will spin off um, Flash and have Flash become the storyteller and the readers will still get to keep up with look, what is going on in Lucky's life, but we'll have a new storyteller. And um, Flash is a little bit naughtier um, than Lucky and certainly can get in in more tight places than Lucky as a corporate executive, um, you know, could get into, even though she manages to find, um, as, you know, pretty much trouble. But Flash can probably find even more. And so I thought she would be a fun character to play with if I wanted to keep the Lucky series going. And so this novella is just a, an effort on my part and sort of a fun test to see, um, is her voice strong enough, which, yes, it is, and um, can I control her? That's not so clear. And, um, but she's, uh, you know, can I write in her voice and not have it sound like Lucky? And can she tell a story as well as Lucky can? And um, I found that I have, after having written as many novels as I have at this point, which isn't, frankly, that many, but hopefully with each novel comes a little more skill, that, um, that I do have um, the, the craft to do that, um, which delighted me no end because I had no idea. And so I'm having fun playing with that as a different construct for for the lucky books it might add sort of a dose of of interest you know spruce it up and and make it and definitely a dose of edginess well it sounds interesting i can't wait to read that as well i i, I have to tell you that uh, julie's been glaring at me at night as i've been reading lucky catch because i'm laughing out loud so often you know your your books are always funny and there are always laugh-out-loud lines. And there's so many books that are kind of funny, but you don't laugh out loud. I always laugh out loud with yours. Oh, yay. Thank you. <laughs> there's a special place in heaven for you. Yeah, but, but <laughs> Julie will be glad when I'm done. <laughs> well, you know, and that is the hardest thing about these friggin' books is, you know, when I write it, um, the first time through when I come up with a line, you know, I'm thinking, oh, I like that line. That's that that could be that's funny. I like that. You know, well, the fifteenth time through that you've looked at that line, yeah. it no longer is funny. It has no pop whatsoever. And so by the time I'm done with those books and I and I, you know, turn them over to the publisher and close my eyes and go, okay, 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 you can have it, go do it, you know, it's done. Um, and then I go drink heavily. Um, I am absolutely certain that, you know, that is the book that's going to ruin my career and everything in it is just trite and, and flat and, and awful. And then I, I'm always absolutely amazed and delighted when um, somebody reads it for the first time and it, it actually has some freshness to it. <laughs> so, well, I, I sure have fun writing them and I hope that comes through. You know, I just, I, I let my inner child um, out to play. Well, Deb, it's, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate your time today. You've, you've given us a lot of information to chew on. And uh, the book is Lucky Catch. It's coming out tomorrow if you happen to listen to the podcast on the day it actually comes out. But you may be listening six months from now. And if so, go all the way back to the beginning and start with Want to Get Lucky. 
thank you very much for having me. As as it's always so much fun to chat with you. And gosh, I'm I'm really glad we kept it. To- <laughs> <laughs> well, for people, we we strategized before we started today and said we're going to keep this to forty five minutes. We've never kept it, for, I think, to less than an hour and fifteen minutes before. And this will take some serious editing to even get it down to that point. <laughs> <laughs> we never have anything to talk about. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. If you'd like to find out more about the podcast, including past episodes, you can visit the website at www.theauthorbiz.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast at iTunes. If you have comments or suggestions for the show, you can leave them at the site or you can ping me on Twitter. I'm at Steve Campbell FL. Please join us again next week for another informative episode. 